Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference to discuss issues dealing with the H-1B cap cases for fiscal year 2016. I'm honored and delighted to also have me join for today's panel, Adam Rosen, who is both a member of the Murthy Law Firm and has been with the firm at this point over 10 years, and most importantly, since this year is the assistant managing attorney at the firm. We also have Kevin Andrews, who some of you may have also heard along with Adam on different panels, who's also been with the firm close to a decade at this point, um, certainly over half a dozen years. Um, and so you truly have a versatile pa a panel to discuss uh, some of the hot issues that you need to be aware of as employers, as HR folks, uh, dealing with U.S. immigration law issues, particularly H-1B cap issues. So let's get started. Adam, if I could start with you. So what exactly is this H-1B cap and how does it work? I know most of you are already aware of it. And so for those of you who are aware of it, sorry we're wasting your time. But we figured it was more important to just quickly lay it down so that a fresh person can pretty much understand the context of what, why, how we are building up the case. The H Thank you, Sheila. The H-1B cap is an annual limit on the number of new H-1B workers. That's set at 65,000 but only 58,500 numbers are generally available since there are the remainder are set aside for special programs covering nationals of Chile and Singapore. There are 20,000 extra slots for individuals who have completed a U.S. master's degree. The degree has to be one issued from an accredited and public or otherwise not-for-profit university. So if you have any questions about this particular issue, about the status of the school, the school's um, not-for-profit, public, or accredited, you should consult with a qualified attorney. You may be able to find this information out online. Once the 20,000 master's quota is used up, those with the U.S. master's can file cases under the regular quota, or USCIS itself may shift those cases over to the regular cap. Okay, that was quite a lot for people to figure out. But I think, as most of you know, it's around 65,000 plus 20, and then there's little quotas in between. Uh, and, of course, we're expecting this year for the quota to be reached within the first five business days. Initially, it was the first day, which was usually the first Monday in April, but now uh, or the first working day in April usually the first Monday, uh, and now what's going to happen, or the first day in April, I guess, first work day, but now we're going to have, um, um, you know. They have the lottery. First five days right. in the lottery so time. Any, so it doesn't really matter whether you get there on the first business day or the fifth. Okay, so now the next question, which I'm going to have Kevin jump into, is when should these cap cases be filed, and how does all of this timing work, Kevin? Thanks, Sheila. So the cap cases can be filed for uh, the start of the beginning of the fiscal year. So H-1B status, one can enter into H-1B status at the very beginning of the government's fiscal year, which starts on October 1st. So our fiscal year 2016 
begins October 1st, 2015. Now, everybody knows that April 1 is the the date that everybody rushes to make sure you get the filing by. And the reason is because H-1B cases can be filed up to six months in advance of the requested start date for the new fiscal year. So six months prior to the beginning of the government's fiscal year is uh, uh, April 1st, which is why we're filing the cases on April 1st for a start date of October 1st. Okay, so let's jump to the next issue, which is what happens if there are a whole bunch more petitions that we just touched upon are received than are available? So cap cases are accepted by USCIS until there are no more cap numbers available. And due to the high volume of applications in some years, USCIS receives expects to receive more applications than their numbers available. And so they, as Kevin said, they'll start accepting cases for an October 1st start date in the first five business days of April. Um, which this year comes out to April 1st through April 7th because you have two extra days of Saturday and Sunday in there. So if at the end of the fifth business day, which is at the end of April 7th, USCIS confirms that more applications have been received than there are numbers available, then USCIS will conduct conduct a random computerized lottery, and every application received on all five business days will be included in this lottery. So it doesn't matter whether you get there on the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth business day. Everything goes in to this lottery, and they randomly select the petitions for the cap. Hmm. Okay. Um, also, Sheila, the uh, you know the master's cap and the regular quota does both. They both do need to be assessed. And if there is a lottery for that master's quota, applications that are not accepted under the master's lottery, those numbers are going to be added to the regular quota. And also, if needed, uh, there'll be a lottery for the for that regular quota as well. Uh, but this whole thing about the lottery that we're talking about, USCIS is definitely going to make an announcement very early on whether or not there will be a lottery. Um, but uh, probably the general takeaway from all this is, you know, when the economy is good, the H-1B supply is relatively bad. And, you know, it, the, the chances uh, of being selected do go down, I guess, when the uh, when the, vo- the demand goes up, because we're still talking about numbers that are just 65,000, which, you know, arguably are not in line with the uh, needs of the economy. Sure. So true. And I think it's going to be the sort of the crux of the, the, the mantra, as people keep saying, or the mantra, as people say, that we should let the economic forces of supply and demand play their game. And so if there is a dim- excess demand, then we should eliminate it. But that's an issue for Congress that's beyond the scope of our discussion for today. Um, so really, the, I mean, I think the thing that everybody wants to know, Sheila, is who exactly is subject to the H-1B cap, because um, some people aren't. So the important thing to keep in mind is that um, this is someone who has never had an H-1B in the past. That's someone who would generally be subject to the H-1B cap. And a person who was counted against the cap in the past but was out of the United States for one continuous year may choose to be counted against the cap to receive a new full six years in H-1B. The person may also choose to use the remainder of the six years from their previous H-1B petition. So and that was something that was changed in the last few years compared to how originally they had planned it. Yes. So there's a memo that USCIS issued addressing this issue. And so um, the one thing to be mindful of in this um, the second option of choosing to use the remainder, that it's something that you want to consult with an experienced attorney because depending on how much time has passed, since you actually were in the United States in H-1B status, it may be more or less of a problem in getting USCIS to give you the remainder. 
Also, Adam, there's some uh, occupational specific uh, exemptions as well. Uh, physicians, those who are here uh, as physicians on J-1 waivers and receive those waivers based on uh, what they call the Conrad waiver when there's a uh, interested government agency looking to employ that physician in a underserved area, those are cap subject if they want to transition into H-1B. And also, uh, there are uh, there are also uh, some employers who are cap subject as well. Uh, those are specifically employment at the uh, the cap subject uh, employers, excuse me, cap subject employers, including universities and... Um, cap exempt, you mean? Cap, cap exempt. exempt. Uh, sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm talking. I'm speaking about cap exempt employers. Uh, my apologies. So, the physicians, physicians that are working through that J-1 waiver program, they are cap exempt and can transition into H-1B without a cap number. Uh, and uh, additionally, what I was referring to is the employment at universities and nonprofit affiliates. Uh, there are some changes to that. Uh, those rules with university affiliations, so uh, that are in the process right now. So anyone that is involved in that kind of situation should definitely speak to an immigration attorney, uh, because USCIS has indicated some changes to how they treat university affiliations. But those are the occupations, occupational specific uh, exemptions for H-1B. Okay. So let's again jump back. If Kevin, if I can have you start off, what is required to qualify for the H-1B? Uh, so the first thing is that the job itself needs to be a specialty occupation. So what that means is it's a job that normally requires to gain entry into this career to this occupation is a job that requires a bachelor's degree in a specific or a foreign equivalent in a very specific field of study uh, related to that position is the first requirement. And also the applicant, the, per the beneficiary rather, needs to qualify for the job at the time of filing. So if someone's in the process of attaining that degree but does not have the degree at the time of filing the petition, which remember is April 1st for a start date six months later of October 1, um, that beneficiary would not qualify for an H-1B position if they don't have the degree at the time of filing. But also we've said, like we've said before, merely the fact that the person has it doesn't mean make the position a specialty occupation, um, which I think you... Right, right. First point is that the job itself requires, normally requires a, a, the, the bachelor's degree or equivalent and the beneficiary, him or herself, has that degree uh, or equivalent at the time of filing. And if the beneficiary... Just because they have it doesn't make the position itself a specialty occupation, which I think is the biggest issue that sometimes people get confused by. Adam, what uh, what kind of uh, degree is it require? What kind of degree or education is required? So, if a position is going to require a bachelor's degree in any field, it's not a specialty occupation. The position has to actually require a degree in a specific field, something that is relevant to the duties being performed. So, a job that is, let's say, a computer systems analyst that will accept anybody with any bachelor's degree, or that you're looking to hire somebody with, let's say, a bachelor's degree in zoology, it's not going to work. USCIS is going to have a serious problem with it because they're going to say zoology is not related to computer systems analyst job. If the beneficiary does not have the actual physical degree, let's assume that they have a relevant degree, let's say you require a relevant degree. Um, if the beneficiary does not have the actual physical diploma at the time of filing, then that is not necessarily a problem if at least the person can get a letter from the school's registrar confirming that 
he or she has completed all the requirements for the degree, and the only thing that hasn't happened yet is the ceremony for the degree. So it's not as it's not a situation where a person has completed all their you know all their requirements, but they haven't take, passed their thesis or they haven't taken an exam. It needs to be that all the requirements are satisfied, and the only reason that the person hasn't gotten the degree certificate is because they have to wait for the ceremony where the certificates are handed out. Okay, uh, that's helpful. So now, from a very practical point of view, if I'm an employer and I want to know when should I start preparing for my H-1B cap case? Well, uh, you want to start preparing right now if we're talking about 2016, Sheila. Um, but you know, the critical thing is uh, generally. And when we say 2016, just to be clear, it's fiscal year 2016 right. with the start date of October 1st, 2015. Right, as I mentioned earlier, the, fi- yes. the 2016 fiscal year starts on October 1st. Not everybody's uh, a lawyer that knows what fiscal year and all that means. <laughs> okay, and uh, so the critical thing generally for uh, future listeners is to plan ahead. Um, it's it's po- it's not really possible to predict when the cap numbers are going to be depleted. As I mentioned before, when the economy is good, it's a general indication that supply will be low in relation to that demand. Uh, so you know, the more petitions, the, the earlier you file, the, the the likelihood that it'll be selected for the cap just generally uh, increases. So the other thing that to keep in mind is that the, the process itself has time built into it. So when you're preparing an H-1B petition, one of the things that's required is preparing the LCA certification, uh, getting the LCA certified, the labor condition application as- attached that's associated with the H-1B petition. That takes up to nine days to get the Department of Labor to certify those. And I know Adam's working on a lot of those right now. And, you know, it's not just getting those filed over to DOL. There's preparation to make sure that it's done correctly. Um, so... The, the the general lesson here is just to plan ahead, uh, you know, give the uh, give the employee and the attorney as much time as possible to make sure that you uh, address any of those issues uh, to reduce the chance of like of an RFE and increase the chances of approval of that petition. Mm-hmm. So yes, the um, you want to get started now um, or yesterday, as the case may be, um, in order to get th- the HME petition ready to file the, at the beginning of April. The the preparation for the HME petition uh, can be can be straightforward, um, but it can also be complex. Depends on the number of different issues that we'll get into um, shortly that go into an H-1B petition. USCIS um, has been subjecting H-1B petitions to substantially greater scrutiny than they have in the past. In 2014, there was a spike in the number of RFEs that were coming on petitions filed in the CAP, and so. Um, particularly in situations where a worker is being placed in a third-party location, um, we do want to try to maximize the chance for the position going through to approval without an RFE. Um, but in order to prepare the case, you want to get that started as soon as possible. So um, if you have cases that you're thinking about doing, um, it's a good idea to, to do that now. Okay. Murthy Law Firm also does provide, uh, has a lot of experience in dealing with these issues and provides cutting edge and proactive representation with these H-1B cases. So we can definitely assist H-1B employers and their employees and give, you know, general guidance and specific recommendations on how to deal with these trends that that Adam had alluded to. Okay. So I know previously, at least before 2008, there was always the issue about the F-1 status will get over, let's say... April or May or June, usually in the summer, because you get the F1 optional practical training generally for 12 months, unless it's a STEM extension where you've gotten the extra time. But even if you get the extra 17 months, it could very well end up 
ending, the F1 OPT could end sometime in April, May, June. And of course, as we just discussed, the H1 cannot start till October 1st. So what happens during the summer? Are they allowed to work, Adam? Let's get started with you again for this. Right. So remember, the general rule is that you're if someone's trying to get an H1B, a cap subject H1B with an October 1st, 2015 start date, they're not in that status. So they're looking for to make a change of status. And in order to change status to H-1B from October 1st, it's generally only possible if that person is in the United States in some other status at the time of filing and can show USCIS that that status will continue at least until September 30th of 2015. So, so yeah, uh, Adam, so that, that, yeah, like you said, that's generally the rule. Um, a lot of people that are transitioning in H-1B are doing so from F-1 status. So, uh, so luckily, now there, there's this cap gap extension that maybe a lot of listeners have heard about. So that's that's the situation where there's a beneficiary in F1 status working on uh, OPT usually. And when the person is working in OPT, uh, if that OPT does expire before the September 30th date, that person might be able to get the cap gap extension until September 30th. And there are basically four conditions that need to be met. First, the the petition, the H-1B petition, needs to be filed before the person's OPT expires. Uh, second, the change of status that's being requested, uh, or the, the H-1B petition that's being filed is requesting that change of status from F-1 to H-1B, and is requesting, number three, requesting an October 1st start date. And finally, the petition, uh, the case will uh, is eventually approved. So if you meet these four conditions, uh, the person will be allowed to remain in F-1 status uh, and, and continue to have work authorization through this cap-gap provision through September 30th. And then, again, if the H-1B petition is approved, beginning on October 1, that individual continues to work, but in H-1B status now instead of OPT. Or even if it's just pending, it doesn't necessarily have to get approved because they could enjoy cap-gap extension till that date. And let's say it's ultimately denied, let's say worst-case scenario, in October or November, you can continue. To, oh, no, you're only given till October 1st. That's right. But you can continue right till that day, and then hopefully by then you've gotten the decision. The other thing that we have to remember is if the person, if the person, uh, not the student, the applicant, the H-1B applicant is not in F-1 OPT status, but for example, let's say is on H-4 status, or if the petition was filed, the H-1B was filed during the F-1 60-day grace period, then the student is allowed to stay here in the United States uh, on the other status, uh, but is not legally allowed to work and can stay even on if it's on F1 grace period, they can stay here, uh, but they can't work. So if the petition is actually sent back by the USCIS because the person did not get selected in the lottery, if it's that means if it's rejected or if it's denied or revoked, then the cap cap extension terminates at that point. So a petition is considered rejected in the lottery if when they send it back and say, sorry, you didn't get selected for the lottery, or there was another reason for the USCIS not to be able to accept the case for processing. And in order to obtain the proof of the cap-gap extension, the student must contact the school's international student advisor or designated school official DSO and request an updated I-20. That is considered the responsibility of the student and not the DSO. So please ensure that your prospective H-1B employee is aware of that rule. Right. So as you said, you have the cap gap um, 
benefit, whether it's work with work authorization or without work authorization if it's filed during the grace period. But that, again, is only with the change of status request. The other thing to keep in mind, though, with the change of status request is that USCIS policy is that if a person uh, is, is, is a beneficiary of an H-1B petition with a change of status request and that person travels while that petition is pending, that that person um, is abandoning the change of status application, which would negatively impact your work authorization under under CapCap and potentially even your permission to stay here if it was a uh, petition filed during your F1 OPT grace period. So the the best course of action um, is therefore is not to travel because ideally you want to get your H1B petition approved with that change of status and um, and so you want to wait until October first and you have the approval of your H-1B petition. Uh, yeah, one, one last thing I think to take away from this is, you know, there is a difference between being allowed to stay here and being allowed to work here in the United States. So there is the possible scenario that the H-1B petition is still uh, not approved or, you know, still pending and unadjudicated by the October 1st, you know, technically H-1B start date. If that does occur, you know, for someone who's in, in CapGap, uh, so if that does occur, the individual that's uh, still here based on CapGap uh, can continue to remain in the United States after September 30th, but the work authorization for that individual would end on September 30th. So, you know, d- definitely don't want to wait until the end of September to start thinking about these things. Definitely talk to an attorney. There's an option of pay- maybe upgrading to premium processing to avoid having to get involved in this um, in this kind of scenario. So, what about filing a change of status for someone who's not here in F1 status? Uh, yeah, so like you had mentioned it before that you know generally you, you can't change status if you're not be, if you're not able to maintain status throughout until the end of September. So individuals that are not able to do that really just have to uh, prepare the H-1B petition for consular processing. So instead of asking for USCIS to grant the status, uh, change the status to H-1 here in the U.S., the consular processing petition would involve the H-1B petition, if approved, being sent to the consulate for uh, processing so that the individual can apply for that visa the H-1B visa and use it to re-enter the United States to begin the H-1B employment in H-1B status only after re-entry. Um, so uh, there are also situations, the, the other thing to think about is, uh, you know, family members, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be dependent, H-4 dependents um, that are going to have, want to be with, with the uh, H-1B principal applicant. So, um, you know, those are, if individuals are here trying to change status, that's an additional application that needs to be filed. Um, but if they're, you're doing the consular processing option, that's something that uh, they're going to have to apply for separate visas, H-4 visas, um, and, you know, generally do so as a family. So there are a lot of situations where um, one of those, one or all of those dependents sometimes kind of get forgot by the employer or, or whomever. So uh, there's, it's a really good idea for everybody involved in this kind of thing definitely to speak with an immigration attorney just to make sure that uh, th- there are no gaps in anyone's status throughout this whole complicated process. Okay, so let's just get uh, go over quickly the filing fees and costs just so that people have an idea because the most expensive part of most H-1 petitions is actually not the lawyer and legal fees, but more the government's filing fees. Adam, what are those? Yes. So you've got your basic filing fee of $325, and there's the anti-fraud fee that's also required of $500. Um, now, the other fees are, um, there's the premium processing fee that is optional, that is if you want faster service. It doesn't give you an advantage in getting getting into the cap, um, and it doesn't give you permission to start before October 1st, 
But um, once it does get, if it does get received as a cap case and you get your receipt notice, you'll get a decision faster. There's email. There, they'll if there's a request for evidence, they'll email it to you um, or fax it. Um, then you also have the training fee, which is either seven hundred and fifty dollars or fifteen hundred dollars. Um, if you have 25 or fewer employees, you get the lower fee. More than 25 employees, then it's the higher fee of $1,500. There is also the $2,000 border protection fee, which, again, um, like the training fee and the anti-fraud fee, um, needs to be paid by the employer. The $2,000 border protection fee is required if the employer has 50 or more employees and more than 50% of the employees are on H-1B and L-1A or L-1B status. That's combined total of H-1B and L-1 numbers. Now, the employer employers may be exempt from some of the above fees um, that I've that I've mentioned when filing a subsequent H-1B petition for the same worker. Um, but again, these are the basic fees that are required for your cap case. And it's important to keep in mind in preparing your H-1B petition, there may be additional fees that are required for something like an evaluation of a person's foreign education or if somebody is um, has the equivalent of a U.S. bachelor's degree based on the combination of education and experience, there's an additional fee to get that evaluation from an evaluation service. Okay. That's a lot of fees and a lot of costs. When you, I mean, really, I mean, if you really think about it, it's almost close to $5,000 if you're a larger company. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, you know, it's five or even more than 5000 with the premium processing fee when you're done. All is said and done. Okay, so now let's jump to the issue that's a hot topic and that's very, very of great concern to many people, which is the sorts of issues that we're seeing with lots of questioning by consulting companies and off IT consulting companies. So the three most common issues that we're seeing and that you probably have seen is show us that there's an employer-employee relationship or we're not convinced that there's a strong employer-employee relationship. Second, the work location. You know, why is it changed? Where is this error amendment, et cetera? And the third point is the end client documentation, which shows that there is a bona fide requirement for the job, and the job does require a person in the specialty occupation. So, Kevin, if I can have you start off with explaining the employer-employee relationship. Yes, Sheila, thank you. So I think we've talked about this issue in previous teleconferences because we've seen a lot of RFEs be issued on, especially cap cases, on this issue of the employer and employee relationship, or more specifically, the employer's right to control the employee's work. So uh, again, we had spoken about this before. There was a memo that USCIS issued about going about over five years ago now um, that kind of made the requirements for how to determine the employer-employee relationship, at least defined you know, by, by law, a little bit more stringent than what uh, had existed prior. So you know, it used to be that just demonstrating the employer's ability to hire, fire, pay uh, the, the, the wages to the worker to provide benefits would be sufficient to show an employer-employee relationship. And USCIS issued this memo that asks for additional, uh, additional information to show that right to control. So practically right now what we're faced with is an employer needing to very strongly demonstrate in the petition uh, to try and prevent an RFE that the employer has the right to control the, the manner and the means by which the work is done by the employee and that this control that the employer is supposed to be exerting will continue for the entire duration of the requested petition. 
Uh, so, you know, typically that's a three-year period that, that would be requested in an initial H-1B petition. And USCIS is going, uh, must be able to determine through that evidence that if the, uh, that the employer has sufficient control over the employee's work, especially those, that work uh, that's involved being placed at a third-party work location. So I think that's where we're seeing the highest scrutiny. And there are several factors that, uh, that USCIS will consider, things like whether the petitioner has the right to assign additional duties to the, to the employee, to the, the extent that the employer's discretion is over how long and when the employee's work will be done, the day-to-day work of the employee, if they're driving the day-to-day work, um, how hands-on they are in overseeing that specialty work being performed, and uh, also who's providing the resources and the tools and, you know, what they call the instrumentalities and tools. So for our IT workers, you know, there maybe there are laptops and smartphones and other devices, you know, is it the employer that filed the petition that's providing those resources or are the beneficiaries? the workers getting, you know, using their own, or are they getting that from an, uh, a different resource? So USCIS has repeatedly stated that the payment of wages is the least important factor, which seems to kind of go against what the, you know, the law says about what employer-employee relationship really means. Yeah, but, and we were going to discuss more, but at this point, I'm just not sure because we're close to 30 minutes, and we try to wrap up between 30 and 45 minutes. So... Obviously, hopefully you have a really good lawyer to help you to analyze and discuss with you whether there's an employer-employee relationship because that's very common for consulting companies and how you can overcome that. And, of course, we at the Multi Law Firm have a tremendous amount of successful experience in dealing with those issues. So clearly we would suggest you talk to us, hire the Multi Law Firm, or work with your lawyer, your own company lawyer, internal in-house legal team to make sure that you're being taken care of and addressing those issues and not getting denials for your employees. Let's jump to the next issue, if we can, uh, Adam, to work location. What are those issues and what, what can an employer do to obtain the approval? Sure. So USCIS is looking for information about all the actual work sites at the time of filing. So this means they're looking for an LCA that's certified for each work location at the time of filing. If there's going to be a change in work location post-filing, that is going to be a problem. And submitting a new LCA or a new work location after you filed will be a problem for USCIS to approve the petition. It's important to keep in mind also that USCIS does conduct site visits and will visit the site of the work that is indicated on the I-129 form. They're going to the work site and not to the company's mailing address. And so that's why documenting where the work location is is important. And then you also have your documentation of the end client. Um, If there's a mid-vendor also, the various contractual chain, you want to be able to document that to show how the worker ends up at the particular work site, who all the parties are in that contractual chain. Right. And so we talked about the mid-vendors. And they're, as you all know, probably they're very strict about submitting and client contracts and client letters. Um, they also, you know, if a petition requests a three-year duration for its approval, the end client should verify in the letter or the contract that the employee's project will last for three years at that location or what have you. Because if you're not able to show it, then USCIS may come back and only issue the approval for six months or one year if that's all your end client letters mention. Right, Sheila. USCIS has acknowledged that business reality of the you know <laughs> the companies having uh, confidential agreements and also the 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 uh, short duration of the contracts and and which is why USCIS does seem to be at times accommodating to these industry standards, uh, but at the same time holding these kind of cases to a higher level of scrutiny. Yeah, so would the firm be willing? Would does do we as lawyers do it? Who who is supposed to try to get all these mid vendor and end client letters? 
So um, the petitioner, the company that's found the petition will often be the one to do it. We are certainly um, open and available to communicating with, with those companies if that's an option. Um, we're, we're, at the end of the day, we're always willing to work with our, with our clients, the petitioners who are filing these HME petitions, to do what works for them so that we can try and get documentation, either the letter itself or something to show that the letter is unavailable and to provide and advise about alternative evidence to show the, uh, the existence of the work and the contractual relationship. Okay. I think the other critical thing is just preparing everything and making sure that USCIS remembers the you know the the, the evidentiary standard that we're trying to achieve here. It's just that it's more likely than not. So uh, you know, and that USCIS is to analyze the totality of all of that evidence too. So we definitely would work with the employers and getting the other uh, vendors and 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 the end client involved in getting uh, you know like like Adam had mentioned uh, letters through the templates that we would provide or um, some alternate form of, of evidence. But at the end of the day, it's the totality of the evidence uh, and under a very small or uh, the, the lowest possible evidentiary threshold possible, um, which I think is important in, in reminding USCIS from time to time. Okay. And so I wasn't sure how much time we would have, and it looks like we might have just a couple more minutes to actually go over some of the proactive steps for you all as employers to avoid RFEs regarding the employer-employee relationship, which seems to be like a really hot-button issue for the USCIS. And so one of the examples that we suggest to you as a company, as an end client, as a, as a consulting company is the end client letter should indicate that the H-1B petitioning employer, i.e. you, because presumably that's you as the petitioning H-1 employer, that you have the right to control the work of the H-1B employee or beneficiary and clarify in that end client's letter that the end client does not have the ability or the right to assign the H-1B worker to any other workplace. And then documenting the H-1B second, we could look at like documenting the H-1B employer's right to hire, pay, and the ability to fire, as well as make sure that the handbook of the company is signed by the employee to evidence that the person understands that they are working for that employer whose handbooks and employment rules the, the employee, the H-1B worker is being governed by. And then the third example I would give is like an employment contract or an offer letter should also indicate how the H-1B worker or beneficiary is going to be supervised by the H-1 employer or petitioner. Identify the name of the supervisor, what is the manner in which the person will report to the supervisor, and by the way, I don't mean the supervisor at the end client site. I mean the supervisor within the H-1B employer company site, including performance reviews, whether you have regular performance once or twice a year, et cetera. So also, Sheila, the other thing to sh to doc you want to document is the beneficiaries reporting to the, the petitioning employer. So this might be emails exchanged, a phone log, if there's, if there's st weekly status reports or, or some kind of daily log that, that's maintained and reviewed by the, the supervisor at the petitioning employer. Um, you want to be able to document that there are routine performance evaluations. So if this is someone who's on OPT and they've already had a performance evaluation, you've got that. Or if it's somebody who's a new hire, you have a standard performance evaluation form that you normally use, include the blank form to show what would be used. 
Benefits that are provided, you can document. If you offer benefits and you have a plan, a package of what you provide, you can include a copy of that to show what's, um, what is offered to, to your new hires. You're trying to show the kinds of things that tie the, um, tie the beneficiary to you as the employer, as your employee. Yeah, like I was say- mentioning before, Adam, like, uh, you know, the tools and, like, if you're providing devices and laptops to get the job done, um, if there are any patented products or licensed uh, products or any kind of tools like that, definitely is something to include. Um, and, and training materials, uh, you know, evidence of the training ma- materials, training provided by the employer to the employee. So I think, generally speaking, the best way to show the right uh, to control is, is the actual evidence of actual control. I think that's uh, how you make your strongest case. Yeah. So as you can see from all of these examples that the Murthy Law Firm legal team truly has vast experience um, in dealing with various H-1B related issues from the simple and the mundane to the complex and convoluted kinds of issues. Very often, unfortunately, people will only come when there is an RFE or a denial or a notice of intention to deny. But as we all know, prevention is always cheaper than cure. And coming to us at the Uh, start of the case rather than after the case has been filed maybe with certain flaws will make it even more difficult to get the approval. And if you've already been lucky enough to uh, not be rejected in the lottery and now your case will get denied because it was improperly filed and isn't able to show all of the join all the dots for the government, that could be a big problem for you all as employers. So um, we really, on behalf of all of us here at the Murthy Law from the H-1B Legal Department, on behalf of Adam Rosen, Kevin Andrews, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we wish you the very best of uh, luck and success for this cap season in 2015. And we hope that we can help you in filing all of your H-1B petitions and your green card cases through the amazing, brilliant Murthy Law Firm team. Thank you so much for making time in your busy day to join us, and we look forward to continuing to help you and your employees and future employees. Have a great day.